This is why when we begin to see some recessions or some downturns, Leo and I say, stay the course. Keep buying every single month because every month that it's low cost, you're buying at a discount. And when it goes back over time, you'll be glad that you bought at the low point. And so that dollar cost averaging is a great principle. Welcome to Getting Money Right, a show dedicated to helping you achieve financial freedom through education and inspiration, so you can be free to pursue your true life's purpose. We are your hosts, Leo Sabo and David Thompson. And on this episode of Getting Money Right, we're concluding our multi-part series on investing. I hope it's been beneficial for everybody. We've certainly enjoyed recording these episodes. Today, we're going to talk about some of the investment rules and terms that we hear in the investment world. So let's begin with bull market versus bear market. Now, bull markets are characterized by optimism. There is no specific universal metric used to identify a bull market. However, the most common definition of a bull market is a situation in which the stock prices rise by 20%, usually after a drop of 20%, and before a second 20% decline. That's right. See, it's fun to talk about bull and bear markets because it's terminology that we hear all the time in the news or in investing jargon. But to really put some parameters around this, a bull market is when things are going fairly well. Mm -hmm. uh, typically, it's after the market has declined for a while and then all of a sudden it has grown by 20%. Yep. That's huge. All of a sudden, everybody is feeling extremely optimistic. They're mm -hmm. feeling like life is grand. You know, maybe I should invest because it looks like everything is moving up. Right. And then just on the opposite side of the spectrum is the bear market. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> the opposite side is when things have been going up for a while and then stock prices fall by 20% from their peak. Now that could happen in the course of three months. It could happen over the course of a year. Uh, let's say that you had a stock that was $100 and you know six months later it was $90 and six months later it was $81. You're not officially to the bear market, but as soon as it drips below 80, then all of a sudden, oh, now we're in a bear market and mm -hmm. oh, things have been contracting and things are slowing down. And yep. so there's a lot of pessimism, a lot of fear. And so uh, it's not exact science. It usually takes time to figure out whether we're in a bear market or a bull market because the market can be slowing down or trending up. And it takes a history or a track record to look back on and see where we hit the peak and where we are today. So this typically happens in cycles. We move from a bear market to a bull market and from a bull market back into the bear market because there's only two of these, how they've classified them. Mm -hmm. It really is. It's going to be one or the other right. that we're in. And so you see this cycle. And so for quite some time, you'll see that downtrend. And then over time, you'll see a recovery and you'll see everything move back into a nice bull market where everybody again feels like, hey, things are going great. Let's start investing. Let's start pouring mm -hmm. in. Mm -hmm. What's interesting is that usually during a bear market, that's actually maybe the best time to invest because things are lower. Right. Everything right? goes sale. Everything. Right. And but but over time, it's going to recover. And so, um, you know, analysts usually can only recognize when we're officially in a bear market or a bull market mm -hmm. after it's happened. Yeah. You, know, you don't know until uh, you look back and you say, okay, based on this date where we hit a certain peak and this date where we officially went a 20% increase or a 20% decrease, that's when they're able to really identify it and call it a bull or a bear. Yeah. 
So what market are we in right now, David? <laughs> <laughs> well, I would definitely say that we are in a bull market. That is a good market. This thing started back in March of 2009. Yeah, it's incredible. This is the longest running bull market in history. Mm. It's 127 months mm-hmm. of the market not having a 20% dip. It has just continued to increase over time. Now, there's been little dips, but none of them have been a 20% dip. So this bull market uh, beat out the 90s bull market. I'm sure a lot of people remember back in the 90s, we had a bull market that was 113 months. Yeah. Uh, that is a long time. And you had all these companies that were growing around the internet, right? The economy was fairly good. Uh, the government wasn't running a deficit in the 90s. They were actually earning more than they were spending, which is unbelievable because for the past 20 years, we've been spending more than we've been earning or about mm-hmm. 20 years now. Um, and and so the, the economy was doing well. Uh, businesses were growing. The dot-coms were growing. Now, of course, in 2000, 2001, the dot-com bubble burst and mm-hmm. that caused a recession and that caused a bear market, but the 90s was a great time. And so when you look at that, our current bull market actually having been longer than the one in the 90s, this has been a great economic 10 years. It's really incredible. 127 months means 10 years and seven months. That's awesome. That's incredible. Um, Along with that, you can see that, you know, we've risen by 330% in that 10 year period, right? S&P 500. Yeah. 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 What's interesting about that is if you think about 2007, 8, 9, and how depressed things got and how everyone was just like, wow, this is the worst thing that's ever happened. Um, Nothing close to that other than the Great Depression is what they started to, of course, compare it to. But nobody saw this or nobody talked about it. I'm sure somebody, maybe Warren Buffett or people like that thought, "Ah, I've been here before. I know what this is like. However, most people were so focused on the downside that nobody thought, gosh, in the next 10 years, we'll see at least a 300% increase in the S&P 500. Nobody thought of that. Now, the 90s bull run, which returned 417%, uh, is also obviously incredible. But that's the hard part about when you think about the bull market and, and the bear market, is that when you're in a bear market, when things are depressed, when things are you know, there's a lot of uh, pessimism about the future. You never see this incredible growth that happens in the bull market. Or we tend to forget, right? We're right, people we that are emotional. We're in the moment. And we think, gosh, it's going to be different this time. But I, I love thinking and talking about this because it does show that there's this cycle. And when there's a downturn, there's always an upturn. Mm. And if you begin to look at it from the perspective of if there's a downturn and I continue to do what I've plan to do, which is just to stick to this investment strategy of just continuing to buy stocks and mutual funds every single month, just do the dollar cost averaging that we talked about in the last episode, that over time, you'll continue to benefit from these huge upswings, these bull markets that'll help you to achieve your financial goals uh, from the investments that you make. Yeah. And I just, you know, for some clarity, a 330% increase, Mm. uh, that means that if you had $10,000, this is just based on the S&P 500, which is, again, it's an index, it's a list of 500 of the largest companies. It is a great average in general of how the stock market has done, but it's not a perfect indicator. Mm -hmm. But 330%, that means if you put 10,000 in, that it would have then doubled, right? It would have tripled to 330%. So it would have yeah. gone from 10,000 to 30,300. That's a, that's a great return on your investment mm-hmm. just in the last 10 years. 
300 plus percent. That's crazy. And so this is why when we begin to see some recessions or some downturns, Leo and I say, stay the course, keep buying every single month because every month that it's low cost, you're buying at a discount. And when it goes back over time, you'll be glad that you bought at the low point. And so that dollar cost averaging is a great principle. Mm -hmm. So let's talk about how do you remember which one's which? Because I think people get them confused. I certainly sometimes do. Uh, so where do these names come from? First of all, how can we impart this this knowledge to our audience so that as they think about their bull, all of that, it becomes just kind of second nature and they know they know what market they're in. Yeah, well, so I went back and looked at a bunch of different history on this and did some research to figure out, you know, where did the bear market and bull market, where did that language come from, mm -hmm. right? And so I, I went and studied, uh, you know, what etymologists say. And etymologists study the history of a word and they look at the language and they figure out where, what was the beginning point? What was the origination story? Mm -hmm. And so I looked for the bear and there's actually a few different different origination stories. So I don't know which one is fully accurate. I'll kind of highlight which one I like the best. Uh, but for the bear, etymologists point back to a proverb. Now this goes back about 100, 200 years, a proverb saying that it's not wise to sell the bear skin before one has caught the bear. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> so this is 18th century stuff, right? This was back when there were actual fur trappers who would go out and trap bears and mm -hmm. gophers and squirrels and sell the fur, sell the pelts. And they're basically saying that there were people who would, you know, sell a bear skin before they had actually caught the bear. And they had a term for these people. They called them, they called them bear skin jobbers. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and so if you saw a bear skin jobber come in, if you got that reputation, oh, that's the kind of guy that's going to sell you something before he actually has it. It's almost like counting your chickens before they've hatched, right? <laughs> right I think my right. mom used to say that. Yep. It's, it's the person who, who has gone out and decided to make a sale before the investment has come in. And, and here's what's happening. When you're in a bear market, the reason that kind of correlates is because you are in a market that is experiencing that idea of somebody who has, you know, begun to sell something. They're speculating something before they actually have the product in hand. And the reason that that fits is just that pessimism around that is, can I really trust what's going on? Can I really trust that the economy is going to recover? Can I mm -hmm. trust that you're selling me something that is actually going to be delivered? And there is just this general feel in a bear market of mistrust and of fear and of worry. Yeah. And that's what a that's what a bearskin jobber would create when they walked into the old saloon and they were trying to sell something they didn't have yet. That fear and that angst is what would occur. Mm -hmm. <laughs> now on the bull market side, we have a different story. And I think this goes all the way back to ancient times. This is where I would pinpoint it. Uh, there's a few other stories we'll talk about. But think about... Uh, 2,000 years ago, when people were making sacrifices, and uh, they would go out and they would sacrifice something like a bull because they were anticipating or they were trusting that good things were coming. Mm -hmm. You don't sacrifice a prized bull unless you believe a good harvest is coming, sure. right? You're, you're at that place of, okay, you know, I'm trusting, I'm pushing forward, I'm going to sacrifice the best I've got in anticipation of something good. Mm -hmm. uh, or maybe they were fearful and they were trying to get out of something bad, right? They believed in a deity that was going to remove something bad and bring something good. Either way, sacrificing that bull allows them in their mind, that, or reminds them that good times are ahead, that they're moving into a harvest season. Mm. 
So there's a few other etymologies out there, and I think this one's pretty simple and could make a lot of sense. Back in the early London stock exchanges, uh, this is back when people were physically writing out, you know, little billets of uh, what's happening. There's like bulletins of, hey, this is, I'm selling you this for this. And traders would write on the bulletin and they would call that a bull, right, to shorten that language. Mm -hmm. And during a really busy market where things are moving and people are buying and selling and there's a lot of trust and optimism, there'd be a lot of bulletins on the board mm -hmm. of people either selling something or buying something. And so you saw a lot of bulls, bulletins, now you're in a bull market. Mm -hmm. But then if the board was bare, right. there was no bulletins on <laughs> the board, it was bare, yeah. then you're in a bear market. So it was just a great, I think that's a great simple way to think of it. When things are selling and moving, you're in a bull market, there's a lot of bulletins up. But when you're in a bear market, there's nothing going on. Yeah. I, I like this one. I like uh, this etymology that says that some people say that term refers to the ways the animals attack their prey. A bear swipes downward with their paw, while the bull thrusts upward with their horns. So I like that one. It's easier to remember for me. So bear, down, bull, up. That's right. <laughs> now, uh, as we talked about, we are currently in a bull market. There's a lot of stuff in the news about how we may be transitioning to a bear market in the near future. And the truth is nobody knows. Mm -hmm. We won't know until after it happens because right. the market could go down 10%. But then it could actually then trend back upwards and keep going 10, 15, 20, 30% in the right direction. Right. Uh, so until it officially hits a 20% decline, we won't actually know. So so don't worry about it. Keep on with your dollar cost averaging exactly. plan. Uh, create your investment strategy that you believe in and then execute that plan. Don't change it unless you have some brand new educational information that causes you to begin to shift your overall strategy. Don't don't jump in and jump out as a fair weather fan on the market. Right. <laughs> and if you're balancing that portfolio, then just stick with the course. I mean, eventually you'll get to that place where you'll just start taking less risk as you get older and you're starting to use some of those funds for your own uh, you know, lifestyle and well-being. But for now, if you're young, if you're still in the middle of that, investment cycle, don't worry about a down cycle. Uh, the way we look at it is that that's an opportunity for you to buy things much cheaper, which eventually will go back up, right? That's right. Up and down. It'll just continue that way. So let's talk about the next thing, which is the 4% rule. This is also a term that we, uh, we've we talked about before, but something we want to talk about again to really remind you uh, what this means and how it applies to uh, our investment lives. So the 4% rule is a rule of thumb used to determine the amount of funds to withdraw from a retirement account each year. So we're talking about you investing for the next 30, 40 years. And then at that point, when you start taking money from that investment to live on, a 4% per year from that investment is what we're talking about. A 4% rule means you'll take 4% from that amount. So if you had, for instance, a million dollars, 4% would be $40,000. So you take $40,000 to use to live on while that million dollars, the initial balance will continue to be preserved. Yes. And this is something that's been studied for years. This 4% rule is kind of an industry standard. Now, sometimes they have gone up to a 5% rule and said, oh, we think you can withdraw 5% of your overall nest egg every year. But then they ran the numbers on it across hundreds of calculations, across hundreds of real life examples. And they realized, oh, that's a little bit too high. Right. Because if you happen to pull it out at the wrong time in a, in a right before a big recession, then it may actually cause you to not be able to live on mm -hmm. your nest egg. So they brought it down to 4%. And it's really considered a safe 
rate, right? That, that you're withdrawing 4% of your overall nest egg over a long period of time. You typically will not lose the balance of your investment because you're only using a small percentage of it mm-hmm. and it should be growing. You should leave it invested and it should still be growing over time mm-hmm. while you're withdrawing a little bit by little bit and you have something to live on. So this was created, you know, during a long history. They actually looked over 50 years. They took a 50-year period from 1926 to 1976, and they looked at all the historical data on stocks and bond returns, and they looked at some general portfolios that were put together with good diversification, and they said, look, we think that if you do this over this period of time, that you're going to be fairly safe. Now, mm-hmm. It's not a 100% flawless method, but I think basically on the statistics, it was like a 95% mm-hmm. you know, metric that this is going to work for you. Yeah. So if you start to withdraw 4% in retirement and you begin to see too much of your overall nest egg or your big pool of money starting to, to decrease based on the market or whatever your investments are, you may need to make some adjustments, but... I think this is a great rule of thumb. This is a very easy way for you to have a basic number in your mind of, okay, if I'm going to live on 4% of my investments someday, then I know what my target should be or Mm -hmm. a baseline target. Um, It's interesting. There's no historical case during the 1930s to the early 70s where a 4% withdrawal rate would have exhausted somebody's entire portfolio Mm. over 33 years. Yeah. So most of the time here from the 30s to the 70s, there was zero historical cases where if you had used this method that you would have run out of money in 33 years. I love that because this gives you a longevity in retirement. Yeah. And it answers the question of will I run out of money in retirement? Because it helps you to realize that as long as you stick with this rule and you just take 4% out, that it will last. So even someone who maybe retires at 60, let's say. They would live to 93 before that money would run out. Yeah. So plenty of money to last you for the rest of your life. So let's take a look at what that looks like in an actual income. To have a $75,000 a year income, you'll need to have saved $1.875 million. Because to draw $75,000 at 4%, right? That's 4% of the $1.875 million in order to make it last. However, that's assuming you add no additional income from Social Security or from working. So if you do work, let's say you earn 30000 from another source, then you only have to take out $45,000 from your retirement account at 4%, which would then change that $1.8 million to $1.1 million. So it really all depends on whether you are fully basing your retirement income from this investment or if you have multiple ways that you're receiving money. If you do have Social Security coming in and that's going to take a part of it, then you would not need to take more than let's say $30,000, a year. So that 4% would mean that you don't have to save as much, right? So instead of having almost $2 million, you can have closer to $1 million, depending on if you have some other income coming in. I love this example, Leo, and I love how it just ties into your overall financial planning because if you've been earning $75,000 a year and that's what you're used to living on, well, now you can begin to make some realistic adjustments to your investments and to your saving 
to get to the number that you're going to need to be able to still live on that. Mm -hmm. Now, we talk about this, Leo. You should be at the place in retirement where you've paid off your house, sure. uh, where your cars are paid off, and you don't have quite as much in expenditures. Mm -hmm. So let's say that you're able to say, well, I'm used to living on 75000 but that's because maybe every year I was putting 15000 into retirement, right? and I was putting 10000 towards my house. That's mm -hmm. 25000 right there. Right. And let's say that you were uh, before entire retirement, you were eating out a lot more for work. You were having some work travel expenses that weren't being reimbursed. Yeah. And you realize that along with your social security and along with money that you won't be spending on, you know, a mortgage or cars. on cars yep. or on saving for retirement, you can actually live on $40,000 a year mm -hmm. in retirement. That's awesome because then you only need 1 million in your retirement account to live on that 4%. So this just gives you a framework for thinking about it. 4% uh, is 1 25th of 100. Mm -hmm. And so if you were to flip this and you say, okay, I know that I need to live on $10,000 a year, you could multiply that by 25, and that would give you the amount in your retirement account that you would want to hit. That's 250000 Right. If you know you want to live on $50,000 a year, you multiply that by 25, and that's $1.25 million a year, $1,250,000. Right. So either way, this is very simple, very helpful. I will look at somebody's budget, and I'll see, okay, every, every year you're living on about $50,000 a year. Mm -hmm. In retirement, you won't be saving for retirement, so we can pull that out a little bit. You'll have a little bit of Social Security. I can see what they're actually going to spend in retirement, and then I can help them project towards a big number. Now, it's a basic projection. Yeah. Uh, you may want to sit down with a certified financial planner or a CFA to really dig into the numbers deeply. But if you're just doing a rule of thumb, this is super helpful. Yeah. Yeah, and it's so easy to just use that to help you to understand that you may not need to save as much as you think. I mean, we talked earlier in a different episode that there's this idea that you have to have millions of dollars in your retirement account in order to not run out of money, that it's a huge fear for most people. But in reality, if you begin to do this 4% rule and you look at what you have right now, what you're spending, how much you'd be able to Stop spending money on, like David said, if you don't have to invest anymore as you get into those retirement years, well, that's 10, 15% that you're investing now, hopefully you're doing that, that you won't have to do anymore. So you can cut your budget down by 15, 20%. So the point here is that it helps you very quickly to get to that number so that you have less fear about the future and you're able to put a plan in place that's going to help you to know, hey, generally speaking, if I stick to this plan, I'm going to be at a good place. Yep. So we've talked about bull and bear markets. We've talked about the 4% rule. Uh, last week, we talked about several other great terms. Mm -hmm. We are coming towards the close. And the last couple of things that Leo and I wanted to talk about was when you actually go to make a purchase mm -hmm. inside of a brokerage or inside of a, you're going to buy a stock or you're going to buy a mutual fund and you're looking to buy an investment, oftentimes you're going to see this language. It's going to ask you, do you want to make a purchase at the market price, mm -hmm. at a limit price, or at a stop price? Mm -hmm. Or sometimes they say a stop limit price, right? And you're thinking, oh my goodness, what does this mean? Yeah. I just wanted to buy a stock, or <laughs> I just wanted to buy a mutual fund. Yeah. Uh, I, I was buying an ETF through Vanguard the other day, 
And it said, do you want the market, the limit, or the stop price? Mm -hmm. And I had to like take a second and remember, okay, what does each what one do of these mean? mean? Right. <laughs> and, and I read through on the, right there, you know, on the app, it shows you, this is what market means. This is what limit means. This is what stop means. So we just want to give you that information so that as you get there, you're not confused or worried by that language. So a market trade executes the trade immediately at the best available price. Mm -hmm. Now, if you are buying when the market is closed, which I don't know if you realize this, the market can be open and it can be closed, right? Sure. It has normal business hours. <laughs> so if you are trying to buy at like eight o'clock at night when the market is closed, then it's going to wait until the next morning to mm -hmm. execute that trade. Right. And it's going to buy it at the best available price that morning. So the, the price may have shifted from the night before how the market closed to what it opened at. And that's okay. That's normal. And when I typically buy something, I just want the market price. Mm -hmm. Like I'm not trying to game the system by two cents yeah. or by 50 or cents time the or, market. or time the market. Yeah. Right. I'm not trying to be real specific. I know that I've got this dollar cost averaging strategy with rebalancing my portfolio, well diversified mm -hmm. over a long period of time. Hopefully all those words made sense to you if you've been listening <laughs> to the series. Yep. Um, and I just know I want to buy at the market price. But there's also a limit price that you can choose to buy or sell at a specific price. And so let's say that I only wanted to buy a, a stock or a mutual fund when it reached a specific price. I could say, you know, right now it's selling for... $80, mm -hmm. but I don't want to spend any more than $75 because I don't right. think it's worth more than $75. So I'm going to wait until it declines down to 75 and I'll put an order in today so right. that the machine will be constantly looking for that $75 price. Right. And I don't have to sit at my computer and be looking and hoping and waiting. Mm -hmm. It's like, no, as soon as it drops to that number that I think it's going to drop to, then it makes a purchase. Mm -hmm. And so that's a great strategy. If you believe a stock is going to go down in value, you just wait till it hits that dollar number and then you purchase. Or if you're selling a stock, mm -hmm. you know, you could actually buy a stock at, at 80 and then immediately put a sell limit to say, as soon as it reaches 100, sell it. And you have a 20% gain. Well, it's not a 20% gain. It's a 25% gain. Uh, but you could you could actually plan that in advance. Now, the hard thing is you don't know whether the market's going to go up or down unless you have some inside information, which sometimes can be illegal. <laughs> Martha <laughs> <Most> Stewart. <laughs> <laughs> but but you know, you may have a general feeling based on the way that you've studied and and learned about a certain business or about a certain mutual fund. And so that is what the limit is. You choose to limit your sell price to a certain number or limit your purchasing price to a certain number. The, the one key thing here is to realize that, that this purchase, this limit purchase you put out there can be seen by the market, which means that somebody else who's interested in buying it at 75 would see that. And then of course the, the sale would go through. So the last one that we want to talk about is a stop uh, purchase. And this is invisible to the market until a specific price is reached. And then it places the order at that time. And I think that it's really interesting just to see the difference in those. One, everybody can see that you're willing to pay a certain price or sell at a certain price. Mm -hmm. So somebody might look at that and say, hey, I want to make a deal today. I'm just going to buy or sell at that price. But the stop is just invisible to the market. So nobody else knows the computer's just waiting for that to open up on the general market and it happens. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of similarity between the limit and the stop. Um, the big thing is the difference of it being visible or invisible. Yeah. And there are some places 